I think it was the day before, but Les took me for lunch and tried to um, basically lecture me about how to do the job, you know, and said, and he said, you know, whatever happens, uh, don't be too partisan. <laughs> <laughs> well, that worked. He Welcome to the Dilipram All-Rounder Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. My guest is Phil Minnis, and we are talking all things football today. And probably one of the best games we've seen, you saw it in a different place that I did. You were there. Um, I saw it on TV. But Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Phil, I brought you here. It's the 27th of January. I don't know when I'm going to release this, so it could be a month away. But brought you in. It's fresh in our minds because I told you to rewatch it. This is a particularly relevant game because you were there. I was there. And to be honest, I rewatch it once a year at least. Oh, the highlights often. We're, we're talking Australia-Uruguay, the 2005 qualifier. It was played over two legs. Obviously, the second leg was in Australia at Sydney at the Homebush Stadium. I thought we should talk about it because not often do you talk about qualifiers, but this one was a particularly poignant moment for Australian football. Yeah, I think it was one of the most important matches in Australian football history. And I think because of that and the legacy of it, it now stands, and obviously we'll get to it, the penalty shootout and John Aloisi, but that moment stands as one of Australia's greatest sporting moments, I think. Up there with Cathy Freeman and I'm a bit biased, but I think it's just those two really that stand on top of the others. Well, it was a, it was a campaign for the 06 World Cup that started... Uh, with the Oceania Nations Cup in, I think, 2005, which doubled as Oceania's uh, qualifying, qualifying uh, route to the World Cup. And it ended with Lucas Neal bringing down Fabio Grosso in Germany in the final minute of extra time, which saw the end of uh, Australia's World Cup campaign. Would you say it's the best match you've ever attended live? Yeah, so I guess there's a few lays we can go and take this um this dissection and reminiscing down firstly it's obviously a world cup qualifier so for newer um fans of football back in the 2000s and pre-2000s australia used to have to qualify via a more i'd say easy route to get to the world cup and yet we barely made it which we'll get to but we used to qualify through Oceania. Australia was part of the Oceania Federation, which involves teams like New Zealand, probably the only other big team, but then Solomon Islands. Yeah, Pacific Island nations like Solomon Islands, Fiji, Tahiti. Um, Australia would dominate those matches. There's a, a famous match where Australia beat American Samoa 31-0. Archie Thompson scored 13 goals, still both world records. And so that part of the qualification process was always seen as the cakewalk. And we would generally stroll through that. And then again back then the way FIFA had set up the World Cup uh, participating nations and how teams qualified was Oceania didn't have a direct uh, spot in the World Cup finals there was only a, a half spot so what would happen is the champions of Oceania would play off against either the fifth place South American team which was what happened in 2001 what we're talking about today or 2005 sorry 2005, 2005 yeah. it was also in 2001 also too yeah um, and then throughout history that playoff continental intercontinental playoff would change but um yeah this one in 2005 was against the fifth placed south american team which was was uruguay um so just with all that i guess surface level what i'll call surface level context it was already a big game to qualify for the world cup when you go a bit deeper australia hadn't made the world cup for 32 years the last time we had made it was in 1974 which was held in germany and coincidentally 2006 was also held in germany so um, it's been a long time since we had, you know, played with the big boys. And I think that absence on the world stage had other um, 
impacts on football generally in Australia. And we can, I think, clearly see, as we'll go through it, there's, this game was a line in the sand moment for football in Australia. It was funny. I was reading something very recently about this game. And when Hiddink came on board to Australia, Viduka uh, singles him out after a training session and asks, he says, um, why do you want to coach? Like, why are you coaching Australia? You just took South Korea to the semifinal. You've been a successful manager. Worry about your name. And Hiddink encouraged Viduka and said, no, I'm doing this because it's a challenge and I want to be at the World Cup. But I think that mentality was uh, quite evident amongst a lot of the Australian players, which was we don't expect to be at these big tournaments or we don't have the confidence of making them because they hadn't made them for yeah. 32 years. That's right. We almost had a, a loser mentality and the a mentality that the world is against us. It was too hard. Um, it was just luck wasn't on our side. And if you go through the, the failed World Cup campaigns between when we last made it in 1974 to this one, um, it's it's crazy reading. So the 1977, we lost, uh, we didn't make it out of a group involving Kuwait, Iran, Hong Kong, South Korea. In 1981, this is probably one that, the second most painful one, and we'll get to the, we'll see when, you'll see why, why it's not the most painful, but the second most painful was in 1981, FIFA did grant Oceania a direct uh, qualification spot and we lost to New Zealand over two legs. Like, seriously, guys. 85, uh, we lost to Scotland, which happened to be Sir Alex Ferguson's first match um, as manager of Scotland. Um, he, Was it? Yeah, so Scotland will finish wherever they did in their group stage. It didn't get direct qualification, but um, earned the right to this intercontinental playoff against us. Their coach um, had died apparently after that group stage suddenly. And Sir Alex, um, who was coach at Aberdeen at the time and on his, you know, starting his path to becoming the best manager of all time. Um, yeah, got to play little little old Australia for his debut wow. managing his country. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I didn't either. Um, after that, we had 1989, we lost to... Was what? it Argentina in 94? I don't know if... Yeah, 89 was, sorry, another group yeah. with involving New Zealand and Israel and we didn't make it out of that group. 1993, so qualifying for the 94 World Cup was where we came up against Argentina and Maradona yes. and... We're never winning that. No, we're not. But um, for context, and this adds to Mark Schwartz's story, which we'll get to, but that campaign um, involved Australia having to play Canada over two legs. And I'm not sure if you know about this match, but again, in two legs, went to penalty. At the end of it, it went to penalty shootout, and Mark Schwartz has saved two, um, two penalties. And if you watch the highlights, it's eerily similar to what happened in in, wow. in Sydney, you know, 15 years later, or however many years later. Um, and then after that is the, the most painful one I'm alluding to, uh, Iran. Iran. Did you watch that game? I did. You would have been four or five, right? So I would have been six and I don't remember the game itself, but I remember the impact it had on my dad and just the most absurd um, circumstances to deny us an opportunity. It's for those who don't know, it was again, a, Australia playing Iran in an intercontinental playoff. We were still in Oceania, which is why we're playing the fourth or fifth best Asian team there in Iran. We drew one all in Tehran in the first leg. Harry Kill scoring a cracking goal at only, I think he was 17 at the time. And then the second leg was in Melbourne. Australia up 2-0, coasting, booking tickets to France. And I don't know what minute of the game it was. It was towards the end of the... It was in the second half, second but half, a yeah. serial pest, the pitch invader jumped on and decided to pull the nets down, which just blew Australia's momentum. And to be honest... I still don't know why that impacted us so much and and how that gave Iran the burst it did. But anyway, after a 10 or 15 minute delay, they rest him, they put the nets back up. Iran come back out and score two goals to make a two all and win on away goals, which was the rule back then. Well, when you lose or when you don't qualify, you look for any excuse. And that may have been a legitimate excuse, but the fact is, is that we... Australia conceded two goals in 45 minutes when they had a chance to qualify. Um, and been up 2-0 as well. You just mentioned Melbourne. So Melbourne had the... And we're going back because it's... By looking back at the losses, you then appreciate when you win. It makes it all the more sweeter. But when Australia played Iran, it was in Melbourne. When Australia played Uruguay in 2001, it was in Melbourne. Is Sydney just a better football town? Well, I think Melbourne generally has is seen to have a better sporting culture than Sydney. 
just with any sport, they host the Australian Open, they host the F1, they host the um, whatever the motorbikes are called. I should know that. Um, so I think inherently they have um, a sporting culture, but then they do have that same immigrant um, demographic that Sydney does in terms of Europeans that brought football. Um, it's, a, it's a heavy Croatian population, isn't it? Very Greek. It's actually very Melbourne's okay. got the biggest Greek population okay. out of Athens right. in one city, apparently. Yeah. I've heard that stat thrown around. I don't know how true it is. So they've got that same or similar demographic makeup as Sydney, but you add that with the just their sporting culture and you can argue why that is. I personally think it's because Sydney's just a better city with lots to do. We've got our beaches, our weather, our um, lifestyle, which means we're probably subconsciously more distracted. What about for football though? Football, um, so I think very equal. Like Melbourne has produced some legends as Sydney has. The, the, in the If you go back to the NSL days, so pre-A-League, when you did have those immigrant-based clubs, um, Sydney and Melbourne both had a big Croatian club, Melbourne Knights, Sydney United, a big Greek club, South Melbourne, Sydney Olympic, a big Italian club, I think it was Brunswick, Juventus and, and Alpio or Marconi. Um, and then there's others, there was Hungarian clubs, there was Polish clubs, there was Macedonian clubs, Jewish clubs. And so that I think is similar. And when you do go, if you did go through and compare the, the where the champions of, um, the NSL champions came from, I think it did favor Sydney, um, but Melbourne were up there. And like I said, those clubs are huge. And, and then if you go look at the present day, I'd say victory before the recent dramas they've had, Melbourne victory that is, um, were probably the biggest club in Australia. They were okay. the best supported, best facilities. They're not actually the most successful. Sydney FC have won more titles, but um, yeah, I think it's the combination of their culture, Melbourne's culture, and they had the right or the or a similar recipe that the Sydney had. The we talk we think Australian fans are passionate, but the South American fan base is takes it to a different level, and it's a matter of fact that I think in O two a lot of Australian fans spoke uh, and the Australian football players spoke about being on the receiving end of you know racist taunts and being spat at at Montevideo airport that's oh, actually what was said in many abuse. articles about just you know fans just spitting on them um, and, yeah and there's actually footage of when they um when they come out the Australian team come out of the airport there's just a mob of fans just yeah hurling items at them spitting them as you said and they're trying to just get to the bus and you can just tell they're shell-shocked. And in an interview that I've recently come across, John Aloisi said, Australia lost the game at that point. So this is obviously leg two in 01. And, but other little stories from, from that experience, Australia got off the plane apparently and were held up in customs for hours. For whatever reason, every bag had to be checked. And, un- and it was just all mind games. Then they were going to obviously receive that treatment, getting out of the airport, going to the state, um, their hotel. Apparently there were people calling their um, their phones in the hotel, blowing um, up fireworks outside their room, trying to make sure they couldn't sleep. Just tactics that as Australians, we're not used to, but. Well, apparently we returned surf in 05 when the Uruguayans came. Not not the spitting part, but the I think the Uruguayan hotel, um, there were fans that came around and woke all the players up in the middle of the night to affect their sleep. Yeah, and the other example of that, and we'll probably get to it later, but my key core memory of that night was um, during the national anthems where I don't think an Australian crowd has ever done it pre or post that night, but we booed that anthem. And I was in the stadium and I still remember it so vividly. I could not hear a decibel of the national anthem. And I've seen the footage since in the highlights and the guy was belting it out and they were singing and you can hear the boos slightly in the background on the TV footage, but being in the stadium, we could not hear anything it was the loudest noise i've ever heard it is different because on tv when you watch it it you don't get that same sense but you get a sense that oh there are a few supporters that aren't happy with this i mean it's a tough one when because the average fan that steps away from the heat and tension of the game would say this is a sporting match have respect for both countries but sometimes you just have to step out from those shoes and apply the lens of Australia has been on the receiving end of a lot of this, you know, trash talk and just uh, taunts and verbal taunts for years. And the fans, I think, were probably had enough. Well, it was a retaliation because, again, we, we had two games, if you think of it like this, 
in a row in Uruguay, leg two oh one, leg one oh five, and in both matches we were treated horribly. Our anthem was booed there as well. So it was a it was revenge, getting retaliation. And again, seeing interviews after the fact of, of Vince Grella, for example, and Justin Jason Kalina, they're smiling saying, Oh, it wasn't great, but <laughs> they they loved it. And it gave yeah. it just I don't know. I can't explain. I, I remember, again, vividly thinking... Where were you sitting? All right. So I was, standing. I was uh, nosebleeds directly in line with the goal that ended up being where the penalty shootouts were held. So you I was there with the penalty shootouts? I was basically in line with where John Aloisi took the shot. But like, yeah, at Rosehead. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 I guess the spectacle wasn't great. I was, I was small as well, which surrounded by... Just crazy crowds. I didn't actually. I don't remember. Was everyone standing most of the game? Yeah. yeah, you couldn't sit down, and that was even before the penalties. Um, but just the I've never ever experienced an atmosphere like it before or after, and but it still sticks with me. Your um, point about just the the fan base and how parochial and passionate it was. I can just imagine nowadays in a Twitter environment if. So, you know, a hundred people who haven't watched a football game watch this first game. They'd say, oh, this is disgraceful about all of this. But I'm kind of glad social media wasn't at the level it was back then because they would have denounced a lot of what took place in football back then. But in some ways it added to the the, the emotion and the tension and the environment. Yeah, and, and that's, that's right. And I think the context is so important because of what we just described, 32 years of heartbreak um, coming, ag- coming ag- against Uruguay already once before and then you know a few days earlier as well where they treated us terribly um what i alluded to before where the line in the sand moment it's not an exaggeration to say that football in australia like as in it's very survival was you know hanging by a thread and this game had to go our way for football as a sport when you think about how how large a scale we're talking it's just the sport itself because um yeah, the NSL had just died. A-League was just starting. Um, interest was dwindling. Um, and it needed, um, it just needed a boost. And and again, the people booing that anthem, <laughs> including me, we weren't thinking about all that, but it's just in our subconscious. And and again, I didn't experience the 32 years of pain. I, I remember Iran, I remember 01. Um, but still, it's just, it's just this tension and um, excitement and, it's this atmosphere that I don't think can ever be replicated. I, I can't think of any. And the, the proof of that is I've spoken to people since who were at the game that weren't football fans who will say, yeah, I remember that being the best night I've ever experienced. And you read YouTube comments of the highlights and things like that. It's, it's just, yeah, it's never going to be replicated. If you just take a step back in that in those three years, you have a very it's a very interesting time in football and sport generally in Australia because 03, Australia has Australia wins cricket World Cup. And Australia hosts the rugby in 03 and makes the final. And it's the most watched sporting game at that time, Australia, England. So you have that. You have the Sydney Swans winning the flag in 05. Now you might think that's AFL, who cares? But the Swans winning in Sydney means now AFL is now a national sport and that was also one of the most watched games. So as you say, football, soccer football is now falling down and down and down because the NSL is dying, the the support is not there. They really needed this game because they needed something to look forward to and football, uh, I'll say football, soccer because I want to distinguish between the other sports. That is the only sport which actually has the global audience that can, the potential for football f- surpasses all the other sports just by virtue of how many people can potentially watch it and play it. That's right. And it's just bizarre when you think about it. Australians, as you just rattled off all those achievements and different um, titles and, and the like that we've won, that we excel out. Tennis, swimming as well, obviously your NRL. Um, we're you know, sports, we're athletes, we're fans of all sports, except for whatever reason, football. And then there's, this is, again, a deeper layer of, of work and we're trying to work out why um, football wasn't appreciated as, as it should be or as it is around the world. Um, and again, why this game was important. And so just another little tidbit, the NSL had actually died. The government had commissioned a report called the Crawford Report in 2003, which recommended certain um, objectives that we should aim for, the, the game should aim for to, to make it to the mainstream. Again, I didn't realize this until doing some research for today, but 
Channel 7 had brought the highlights of the NSL towards the end purely to squash it. It's wow. a conspiracy theory, but there's evidence and <laughs> a strong belief that they bought the highlights and would only show maybe an hour a week of the entire league, the National Soccer League, um, on their obscure channel at an obscure hour. So there were forces in Australia trying to kill it. And it's another podcast as to why um, we had that was the case. Quick aside, he doesn't commentate as much now, but I always thought Simon Hill was the best football commentator. And I was somewhat disappointed that he doesn't get regular gigs at um, doing Premier League matches or Serie A, Bundesliga, because the, he's got a great... He's got a great voice and he understands the game and he understands the nuances and the ups and downs. I just thought that was a classic SBS commentary team, an SBS broadcasting team with Les Murray, Andrew Osati, Mike Tomolaris. So these are the classic SBS um, people that we don't see anymore because SBS has lost a lot of its you know, football luster and um, football shows. But I just thought... Need to shout out that SBS team who have been one of the staunchest supporters of football in Australia. Yeah, no, that, that commentary is iconic. Um, well, Simon Hill, sorry, I think he's iconic. And even at the 06 World Cup when... Um, Tim Cahill's done it again. Yeah, he's definitely had his wee fix this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like Simon Hill was like querying, is the wheat, are the wheat picks the reason why Australia is going to do well in the last 10, 15 yeah, minutes of, uh, yeah. of, of their Kaiserslautern match? Hot seat, Phil. The first one I had, qualifying process. When I thought about qualifying process, I actually thought about it from the other perspective. And I wanted to just give a brief insight into the South American qualifying process because the South Americans, they um, only made the playoff by, uh, sorry, the Uruguayans, they made the playoff by virtue of a lucky 1-0 win against Argentina, which meant they they finished fifth. But that South American qualifying process, I think it's 10 or 11 top, top South American countries and only the top four qualify and they play 18 games. Yeah, and every qualification campaign that they run through, it's the same countries they're playing. It's the same. And it's just, it's almost like a table. Yeah, top four and finishers make it. Brazil is always Brazil's there. Well, Argentina came close. Um, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Paraguay. And and that's not even taking into account um, uh, Bolivia and... These all like these top nations, uh, and and I haven't even counted Uruguay. And I just thought it's so arduous. Sometimes I think it's a little unfair how like they determine how many spots needs to go to each continent. You would have thought the home of football is either Europe or South America, and for South America only to have four guaranteed spots seems a little bit harsh when you play eighteen games against world class opposition. But but there's only twelve nations, well, however many there are. So you're going to give one continent. 40% 40% um, that, yeah. of the allocation. I, I, yeah, this is, it's hard to say. There's no wrong or right answer. They want to make it. And that's, I think, one of FIFA's arguments for expanding this World Cup to give more spots to yeah. countries that deserve it. But So Uruguay, they finished their qualifying process. They they, they beat Argentina on the last, last day means they, they finished fifth and they fit, work out that they have Australia. Whereas Australia, on the other hand, is I think they had months and months to work out and know that they were going to be playing Uruguay or the fifth place team. I think it helped Australia in that sense that they had a lot more time to really prepare and focus on one game. Whereas for Uruguay, it was a question of, hey, we need to win our next game in South America before we even think about qualifying, um, playing in a qualifying match against Australia. So I just thought the qualifying process, there's no easy fix when you have 211 nations, as you say, wanting to play in the World Cup, but it's tough. But that's what I think that's the answer then to the question why the qualification is so important is because it's it's hard to qualify. Well, it's meant to be hard. What's going to happen in the future with this expandable cup would probably dilute the importance of qualification. Yeah. Asia has eight spots, for example. It should be easier theoretically. But um, yeah, I guess at that point in time, we were finding it hard. We hadn't done it for 32 years. I had airlines as a second hot seat. Now, I think we both knew this, but there was a sense of optimism in Australian football at the time because John O'Neill and Frank Lowy, who basically head up, uh, was it Football Australia at the time? Football Federation Australia. Football Federation Australia. They invested a lot of money in making sure that Australia had no excuses um, before and after that game in terms of the preparation, logistics, travel. And 
Australia chartered its own private airline from Uruguay back to Australia. As we said, it was a four-day gap between between games, which ordinarily is not much time. You know, your bodies are sore, you've played in a tough environment and you've got to come back and it's not that close, Australia and Uruguay. You, you probably lose a day, day and a half in travel. So the airline that the Australians uh, chartered, it had massage tables, it had uh, like almost like a fitness room, showers, everything that the players could ask for to ensure that when they stepped off the plane, they were coming fresh. But it was an opposite story for the Uruguayans. Yeah, so the story goes that the Uruguayans ended up flying back via an economy, via economy and just a normal commercial flight, um, <laughs> which they weren't happy with. Um, you've got, you know, their big striker Morales is, yeah. you know, six foot X, you know, licking his kneecaps in the economy after, as you just described, the big game. But yeah, the reason for that, um, again, just from hearing the stories afterwards is that first time in Uruguay in 2001, Australia weren't prepared. And that preparation is critical to success, especially um, as you described, it's, it's a tough environment playing two games on, in two different continents in four days. Um, so what another change and another sign of how prepared they were this time was Australia actually had a camp in Argentina before a week or so before wow. they flew to Uruguay. When they did fly to Uruguay the second time, instead of being abused at the airport and dealing with customs, they were able to um, get a bus straight from the tarmac to their hotel, avoid all the, the circus yeah um and then on the way back yeah this is just the power of frank lowey who we haven't really gone into and to be honest i don't know too much about his um his story just that he's a billionaire and i guess the power of a billionaire helps he got mm. it was a Qantas plane just fully um customized customized that's yeah. yeah to to cater for this this quick sprint back across third i had frank farina frank farina was a former australian coach and i think he oversaw the campaign in 97 and in 2001, or perhaps it was just 2001, but I felt like he was there for a while in Australian football. Well, he played. He was a gun striker for the team. Passionate player. He, Australia had a disastrous Confederations Cup in 2005, the start of 2005, and they, Australian football said, look, we need to change things up. It's not good enough. Mind you, the Confederations Cup wasn't an easy gig. Australia lost you know, tough games to Argentina amongst other teams, but... I think that change and bringing in uh, Gus or Gus Hiddink signaled a clear statement of intention. Well, I guess there are just levels to it, aren't there? Frank Farina, I'm sure, is a great coach, but he hadn't been at the World Cup as a player or a coach. He hadn't coached in Europe, whereas Gus Hiddink, he was actually a former Real Madrid coach too, had coached Netherlands at the World Cup. He had taken South Korea um, to the quarterfinals or semifinals, semifinals I think. Semifinals, yeah. at the, in their, at the, home, in their, in their home, home nation. So this guy had the pool. He was already a legend. Um, around the world and yeah you pose the question or Mark Voduka posed the question why are you doing this um, I think he just loves the challenge and he had the know-how he had the also he had the personality it's like any great coach they they can have the tactics down pack they can have the man management down pack but the personality of a coach is important as well so if he didn't go into Frank Lowy or whoever and saying we need to do it this way they're going to listen to him he's yeah. been there before he can speak of experience and back it up. So I think no, well, no disrespect to Farina, obviously, but he'd had his opportunity. He might've been close. Who knows? At the end of the day, we lost three, three, one on aggregate over two legs in 2001. We didn't make the world cup. We had a disastrous confederations cup, as you described. I think there has to be a change and in all sports. Really? There's always that, that bump when, when there's a new coach, what wasn't ideal with this scenario is he was only appointed four months before and he also was based in Eidenhoven in Netherlands. So the one benefit is at that time, most of our players were playing in Europe and could train and meet him there, which I don't know if we'd have the same luxury today. Yeah. Well, he didn't want to give up his PSV Eindhoven job. He was coach of P I was going to say that, yeah. So he, some so he said, I will, I think he's one of the few managers that said, I'm going to manage Australia, but I'm also going to manage, keep managing PSV at the same time. And I think the, uh, there was an Australian there at the time. Jason Kalina might have been there or was about he just to just transfer to PSV. I don't think he played a game under Hiddink, but he was a star for Australia. That means that if John Aloisi can score this goal, Australia will Are be there. Are you sure? 
We've got to go through the best moments of that game. And the fourth moment I had was actually, I'm going to say the first leg, and it was Uruguay's, the the goal from Uruguay, because it sets up the whole, t- the whole tie. And it's a goal from Dario Rodriguez. He's a left back. Surprise, surprise, Alvaro Rocoba makes the assist for it off a free kick. And it sets up the tie because it means now Australia needs to actually play football to come back into the game. I thought that was a moment that actually sets up the game for the Australian tie. Yeah, well, it's we went through a lot of context earlier, but yeah. ultimately when you just treat it as a single playoff tie, yeah, being one nil down, um, just made, but we had to, we weren't coming back defending the lead, which may have influenced how we played. We had to attack. We had to get that goal. It wasn't yeah. enough to draw, which can sometimes be enough in these playoffs. Can I ask you quickly, the, I love the away goal rule. It, it just adds something to the game and the spectacle. Having, you've played, you played quite a bit of football, but you wouldn't have played it in front of you know, huge audiences. But is there really such a big difference to playing away and home? Because the reason I ask is we see that difference in the NBA when shooters don't shoot as well when they are shooting away from home. But then you have other sports like baseball and cricket. Um, I wouldn't say cricket, but some other sports where it doesn't matter if you play away from home you're going to play the same. So I just wonder why in football it means so much to score away from home. I think because when you're playing away, and maybe this is unique to football, I could be sounding ignorant here, but what we just described, going to another country, experiencing another culture, experiencing everything just around the game, before the game, getting to the stadium, that all plays an impact part as well. And then the stadium itself, I think you feel the atmosphere as a footballer. Mm. That dictates how um, how you perform. And there's been countless examples in history where the crowd getting on someone's back has influenced how they played. And if you imagine 60,000 screaming diehard fans and the way, again, this is another ignorant comment, the way the fans cheer at a football match is different to how other... Yeah. Um, atmospheres in other sports are the ultras the um the they're not sipping the wine at the football match they're probably not even watching cheese. the game to be honest they're, <laughs> they're focusing on the noise they're making so that surely must have an impact but yeah. saying that you could argue that players some players may thrive off that animosity and that hostility that they're feeling and it could work the other way to be honest the reason why they I've, I've read and heard the reason why they recently changed the away goal rule in that mm. an away goal doesn't Sorry, we should have explained it. The away yeah. goal rule is equal to, if you score an away goal, it's worth two, basically. Yes. So it only, the away goal rule is important when after two legs, the total number of goals are equal. Correct. In that situation, the they will look at how many goals you scored away from home and apply two points to that. Whereas uh, one goal is one Where point. Where it's equal, yeah. yeah okay, no, yeah. And, and the reason why this game went to well, penalties is because it was the same number of goals and the same number of away goals. Uh, that that got us there. Yeah. So they've changed the rule because apparently there's it influences also how teams play. And which I just said, if we had scored that away goal in Uruguay, potentially we're defending the whole game. My third best moment was the substitution. The substitution of Kuehl into the game. Did he replace, was it Popovich? Yeah, so the story there was um, Harry Kuehl was, did play the first leg and as has always been the case with his career, Harry was not 100% fit or question marks of whether he could play the full 90. So he didn't start him, which was controversial, was probably our best player, our biggest name. He started Tony Popovic instead. And the formation he played was a um, 3-4-3 or effectively a 5-3-2. So three center backs with two wingers um, and then one up front, wing back, sorry. And what had happened, what he had noticed with Tony Popovic in particular, a side story was before the game. I don't know if you've heard this story. In the tunnel before the players came out, Richard Morales, who's their big striker we mentioned earlier. He's grumpy to, after his economy seat. Yep, okay. grumpy, tired, sore. <laughs> tried to pick a fight with Tony Popovic in the tunnel just before they came out, before the booing started. Wow. And Tony Popovic didn't back down, pushed him back. And it was all mind games, but it's again considered a... Um, 
as a reason or an, an, an example of how hitting and the mentality and the difference between 01 and 05 shaped how we ended up playing. But he was already wound up, known to be a hothead as well throughout his career. 32 minutes in, him and Rokobro both running down the line, chasing the same ball. Popovic swings an elbow, hits Rokobro in the face, who typically goes down like he's been shot, makes a meal of it, and could have been a red card. Definitely could have been a red card. And that, um, that prompted hitting to make a big call. Yeah. You rarely, if ever, unless there's an injury, see a tactical substitution before halftime. Because that, yeah. that kind of sometimes almost would mean that the coaches admitting they got it wrong, how they started, how or they the set up. the player's been shocking. Or the player's been shocking. And in this case, I don't think Popovic was playing bad. It was just that he was seen red figuratively but yeah. could have seen one literally too it was his it was hitting's way of calming things down bringing on someone a bit more offensively talented but uh as you say could have been a red card the that referee is actually he then refereed the australia italy game oh well the same referee um gave the gave the penalty and also gave the red card to um Matarazzi. was it Matarazzi? yeah so that the substitution happens and then I had my second best, the second moment, which was the goal. Now, if you ask Craig Foster, that goal was all cool and it was the reason for the substitution. But to me, it was a slightly lucky goal, but it wasn't a goal that we didn't deserve. We did deserve it for the way we played and it was um, capped off by Bresciano, firing it in the top left corner. Great goal, brought us back, even, even Stevens and um, I think... You would, what was the emotion like when you were there? Oh, it was an explosion of noise. And I remember clearly my dad. So I mentioned we were in Rosette. I was with my dad. Um, Just you and my, your dad? No, it was four of us. It was my dad, his mate, and his mate's son, who's also one of my friends. Yeah. And <laughs> when that goal went in, everyone just jumped up. And my dad actually fell down three or four rows oh. in front of him. He went flying, like tumbling down. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I literally, he was standing next to me and a second later, I lost him. He literally disappeared. And there was just an incredible noise, incredible feeling. Everyone's going crazy. And I don't know if you have this in your list or if this is part of what you were going to describe, but in all of that, the goal scorer Bresciano's celebration, do you remember what he did? What did Stood like a statue. Literally just stood and looked out. And it's an iconic picture where you can look at it after. Hey, everyone's going crazy and he's just standing there and it's, he's, he's done it a few times since. It's almost like his trademark. And that shot is just emblematic of the calmness, the, 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 the mentality we had. Yes, we've scored. There's still plenty to do, still plenty to go. But on that goal, you're right. Um, in Foster's, you know, trying to say it was kill. It was kill, but it was a kill miss kick. So yeah. I think the passage of play was, came in from a throw-in. Kill did do a fancy little flick back to Cahill. Kale passed it to Vaduka. Vaduka held it up, laid it off for Harry Kill. Harry Kill went for the shot. He goes for the shot, yeah. Completely miskicked it and it just rolled past to Uruguay and straight into the path of Bresciana who smashed it in. And I mean, Bresciana at the time was no stranger to the world stage. He was playing in Serie A. I think yep. Palmer. 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 Yeah, Palmer. At that time, Palmer. And so a great player in his own right. Uh, a, a kick of authority to score that goal brought us back into the game. Watching it live... I, I can't even tell you how any tactical because um, it is very it. different watching it oh, live. We were just hanging on for yeah to your life and just every kick, every pass, every anything you just felt it and you would cheer anything remotely positive. But since watching the highlights back, listening to the commentary, um, I think we Australia were lucky to get through that first twenty or thirty minutes where Rakoba had a few chances and they were on top. How good was Rakoba? He was. Yes, scarily good. Um, just one of those players. Like he'll never. Get, he probably won't get remembered in the. In, in when you talk about history of football, he's not going to be in the top ten. But for us, he was our. Um, he was our Darth Vader. Well, for, I think every team for two qualifying state. Like, correct. For over five years, we come kept coming up against him. I think every team has their danger player, and he was theirs. And he played in a position, and he had the skill set where he could. Yeah put the pass in to kill us or he could score himself and kill us. And he had this in the first 15 minutes or so, he had yeah, a one-on-one, I think, yeah. which he's normally scoring. And that goes against the luck maybe and just, you know, the moment in time that could have gone either way. Yeah. He missed. The other thing about Rokoba, and I'm skipping ahead, and I still don't know why this happened. I've, I did read an interview, so watch an interview with him 
um, we talked about the game, but he got subbed off at the 73rd minute. And I remember then feeling relief. There's still plenty to go, plenty of time to go. We hadn't won the tie yet. We were still winning the game, but we hadn't won the playoff. And I remember thinking, well, they that- lost their creator. Yeah, I think Australia played better in the second half. They had better chances. We could have scored again. We should have scored again. And I, I, I did. I have watched actually watched back the TV um, footage of the game mm. and the post game analysis. Um, Ned Zelic, who was also on there, and Craig Foster were both saying it was justified that we had won based on how we had played in the second half. Again, I don't remember feeling that way when we were <laughs> watching watching it live because they did have good chances as well, yeah. and we did ride our luck as I've said, but. Um, if, as a neutral, I think you would argue Australia did play better in that second half after that goal. And another one of the reasons given is that economy flight, the um, the way they put up. They had players cramping, they had players in and that the, second half and come the weak off picks. injured. And the weak picks, obviously, we've got that up our sleeve. My final moment, and it's a, it's a collection of moments, but maybe we can take it in this process. It's the penalty shootout. But just before the penalty shootout, we were talking that there was some chat that Gus Hiddink favoured um, Zeljko Kalak. I hopefully I'm pronouncing his first name correctly, but he favoured Kalak as the penalty stopper because of Kalak's height, his presence. I think at the time Kalak was the second choice keeper for AC Milan. Yep. So I had some experience and I think Hiddink favoured him slightly, but with a, um, with, with a late substitution, it meant that Hiddink couldn't substitute um, the keepers. Just before, just for the penalty shootout, and fortunately it worked out for us. But it was a big moment. Well, yeah, and, and it's crazy because the substitution was Brett Emerton, Australia's fittest player. Yeah, every player, every <laughs> one of his teammates would say that he was the fittest, and he came off cramping. And so Emerton came off for Skoko when Gusinik did have intended for Swartz to come off for Kalak. And it's again, it's another. Um, just a mind game really like you it's when it comes to penalty shootout it's luck of the draw it's a toss of a queen yeah that change and it's i'll quickly tell another story about that change um the purpose of it is to put the other player off why was in the player taking the penalty why why have they put him on is this guy yeah better is this guy he must be good if they're gonna take off their keeper to put him on graham arnold who we haven't really talked about was the um assistant coach yes. at the time. He's now the current Socceroos coach. He made that change, I believe, putting Redmayne on against in that Peru playoff we discussed earlier. Out. It worked out. He learned that change off Kusinik. He's just said that, <laughs> which is crazy how it all comes full circle. And while our memory of Kalak is somewhat impacted by a couple of the howlers he let through against Croatia in sorry Croatia yep, yep. in uh, in 2006 at that time we just saw him as this intimidating presence and that's what you need as a keeper in the penalty shootouts but we go to the penalties and I don't apart from I thought Australia picked their best penalty takers for the um, for their five and I didn't I obviously don't know too much about the Uruguayan contingent that select went for penalties but I think if you're shooting in front of your home crowd in front of the Australian fan base you you just go up by 10 to 20% in terms of um, just your desire and want. And while penalties are inherently, it's part of it is luck because it depends on where the keeper goes, which side the keeper picks. We just had a keeper who, who guessed right twice and not just guessed right, but he extended himself and they were, they were tough penalty saves. Yeah, they were saves. They weren't misses like yeah. um, Viduka's one. But yeah, so a short story there that I've, I've since read. Um, I don't think they were Australia's best penalty takers. So Bresciano should have taken one, but was, was subbed off. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Aurelio Vidmar, sorry, Tony Vidmar, who took the third one, had never actually taken a penalty before. Um, Why do you think he, he so picked him? He did it. Graham Arnold, this is where I get the information from an interview with him. Graham Arnold was told to choose, went around and asked, Kalina, do you want to take a penalty? No. He ran away. <laughs> Cahill, oh, no. Some players just can't handle the pressure and didn't want that wow. pressure. Tony Vidmar, one of defender, never taken one before, according to him. And Lucas Neal hadn't either. He was the second taker. Some players just want to control their, de- their destiny rather than let... And as much as you can in a penalty shootout, obviously. But um, Vidmar in 01, when they had lost to Uruguay, there's a famous shot of him where he's balling while crying. Oh, sorry, balling while walking off the pitch after they lost. 
pretty iconic photo. And so he was one that wanted to, you know, reverse that and redeem himself and love that. And he took one. So yeah, I think the penalty shootout order was kill first, put it away. Lucas Neal one step, then just banged it in the bottom left hand corner. Then Vidmar, then the Viduka miss, which um, it's interesting that Lucas Neal took the penalty. He's never scored a goal for Australia. No, and it's, there's an argument that defenders make better penalty takers because they're generally considered no no nonsense, no flash, just pick their spot and do it. Whereas now you see the the studded run, the Penenka. Yeah. Um, yeah. You got to do you got to do anything, and which everything is what Uruguay tried to do. Yeah, they both penalties they missed. The Schwartz save. Sorry, I should it was a frame stutter. it that way. It was a yeah. stutter. Yeah. Um, whereas the defenders, no nonsense generally, and just putting it away. Um, but then there, the Viduka miss. Just I remember just thinking, that's it, we've lost. I was <laughs> devastated. And every time the penalty went in or Schwartz had made a save, the crowd just went nuts. Again, five or six times in quick succession, that explosion of, of emotion was just crazy and craig foster's there in the box like if you watch the if you watch it on tv and you would have subsequently watched it he's just saying i think when schwarzer saved one he's like this is bigger than anything you've ever seen like he's trying to find comparisons to what this is bigger than and at the moment it felt like it was the biggest thing we'd ever seen just like those saves and what schwarzer was doing yeah and that's they were saves like we said they were great penalties like they could have if he guessed the wrong way and what schwarzer had, had done if you watch it back is he held his ground. He stayed on his feet and then made the decision. Well, he, sorry, he didn't make a decision premeditated like some keepers do. He didn't guess away. He waited and then had to rely on his... Which is risky. To get in. Because, Super risky. Yeah. Because you're, you're behind, I guess. You're a second behind. But, yeah, and if it's a powerful kick, behind. you won't have the time. Exactly. Um, question for you. When when Aloisi kicks the goal or kicks, scores the penalty, as a team, are you supposed to run after Aloisi or are you supposed to run after Schwarzer? I mean, Schwarzer saved too. And when you look at it, Schwarzer runs a different direction. Aloisi <laughs> runs a different direction. And Aloisi has like 10 people run after him. And there's two or three after Schwarzer. But surely the goalkeeper gets more credit there. It depends. So I'll give you an example. <laughs> when the, with the Matildas recently, their epic penalty shootout against yeah. France. Because, sorry, no, that was a bad example. What I was going to say is if it's a save that wins you the the shootout, everyone runs to the keeper. Yeah. If it's the scorer that wins it, then he gets the um the plaudits. And yeah, another piece of famous commentary, I think, and I have only obviously heard it since. Didn't hear it live, but when Aloisi is stepping up, um, Simon Hill's like, "It's four two, it's four two and Craig Foster's in the background. Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> and then Simon Hill apparently needs to like he oh, asks his producer, he's like, "I better <laughs> check." And then Crazy. and then and then we hear Johnny Warren. Um, in the stands. I mean, you mentioned you wanted to just briefly touch upon him, a huge figure in Australian football, Les Murray, Craig Foster. If you watch any SBS coverage, they always talked about him. But I thought it was nice. It was a poignant and nice touch that they mentioned him because he was one of Australia's biggest campaigners for getting onto the world stage and promoting Australia and suggesting to Australia that Oceania was not the place that they should be. And it was... It's unfortunate that he passed away the year before, but it was fitting that Australia qualified in the years just after his passing. Yeah, well, he died in 2004. And I don't think, and sorry, I should, we should explain to the non-football fans, it's not that we, and I say we as a football fan, want the soccer to just take over and dominate. We just want it to be treated with respect and equally here in Australia and it hasn't been um, the media do- is dominated by the other sports the other codes and it's not even getting the equal presence it's also been actively campaigned against like I mentioned the Channel 7 earlier squashing the, the game by getting the rights um, you know never straight enough getting the um, at the grassroots level getting the same level of funding and facilities provided um, it was just seen as like I said an immigrant sport that wasn't Australian it was a foreign game and Johnny Warren was trying to explain that that wasn't the case. Well, it didn't have to be viewed that way. It, there's room for everyone in Australia um, on, in the sporting landscape. And equally, like the fact that soccer or football is the biggest sport in the world, as sports fans generally, as a country that loves sport, why would we, you know, turn our noses to it? And sorry, his quote, his famous quote is, I told you so. And that comes yeah. in the context of, he would he before he passed away he would his dream was that australia's sorry soccer would be number one in australia 
I think I felt it even before the game even started, the days before, the vibe around the country. Everyone was talking about it on TV, on the radio, so you know, I think the players really felt it. Walking on the park and you know, hearing that na their national anthem and, and our supporters booing them, that was probably the best part of the game for me. That's when I said to myself, you know, we, we finally woke up, you know, because we cop a lot of bad things going to other people's countries and, you know, having problems at the airports and, you know, with their fans and making life very difficult for us. And playing in that game was probably the best atmosphere I've ever played. Here's Kill. His first touch to the field. The spaces. Here's Harry Kuehl, fist hits, and it's, it's in! Australia have scored! Marco Bresciano! But I want to finish off with a couple of modern day topics because you love watching it, you love seeing what's going on in modern day football. So just a couple of points. We've seen Ange Postacoglu take the reins at Tottenham. He's been there now since the start of the season, very up and down season. But maybe just spend a moment to talk about the significance of having an Australian bred coach who's come through the Australian ranks now take the reins at a global powerhouse like like Tottenham. I mean, that this is a huge moment in Australian football. Yeah, so I think it's massive for a few reasons and it kind of ties in with what I just described. This football in Australia isn't necessarily respected at the level it should be. Australians in football globally in Europe where it's, you know, the, the, the peak of it, even less so. Australian players aren't respected there, let alone coaches. No coaches, Australian coaches ever made it to the Premier League like Ange has. So for, as you described, an Australian born and bred and raised coach to make it and dominate in the best league in the world, it's just, um, I feel super prideful. I've never been a Tottenham fan, but since... Um, he's joined. You're I, inviting me to Tottenham games. Yeah, I'm trying to. I know you're a, a, a gooner. Um, but it's just seeing an Aussie shape. Yeah. And and the thing, the different, a difference, well, it might not be again, sounding ignorant here. A coach or a manager in football plays such an important role in a team, more so than I think other sports. Like in basketball, it's it's your your franchise player that dominates and is, is key. Um, tennis, obviously, it's an individual sport. In league, there's a coach, but it's not at the same level that a that it is in football. So Ange is just um, he, it's his role to unite the fan base. It's his role to set the mentality and direction of the entire club. It's a huge role, and to see an Australian talked at, about with these other legends and and then to be appreciated and loved by by Tottenham fans, a big club. It just it's one just makes me super proud. Also, every time he he plays or Tottenham play, I just get this anxiety that he's gonna embarrass himself, which then might embarrass Australians because if he can set the trail, that just opens the doors up for other coaches, even other players. We're not Australia won't be, um, you know, looked at as as a laughing stock or just as a minnow. And he's done it the right way. Um, he. Before this or his achievements, he was more famously known for his spat with Craig Foster. It's on YouTube. It's well worth watching. I was a Fozzie fan like back then. So I was like, oh, wow, what an interview. But that happened. And then, but he went through it the right way. He, he had huge success, I think, in Japan, in Australia with the Queensland Raw. They had that famous unbeaten streak. The Raw Salona. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, just playing sensational football for I'll Australia. You have, you, did you, have you ever played the game Football Manager? Yeah. I used to play it uh, 24 hours, seven yeah. days a week. So his career has basically matched a, a classic football manager save. He started South Melbourne, A-League with Brisbane Raw, Japan, Celtic, Scotland. So just, and now Tottenham always take, and sorry, Australia. Always took a step up. International level as well, taking Australia to the World Cup, winning the Asian Cup. Exactly like a, a, an average career in, in, in FM. But uh, my, my average career in FM was I just picked Arsenal. And you probably and would have tweaked the budget, giving yourselves <laughs> a billion dollars. I want to finish with this, Phil. Um, it's more bringing it back to Australia and the future of football in Australia. But I want to just talk about the A-League with you very briefly because some interesting news happened two or three years ago with this, what we would call an unbundling Thing with Football Federation of Australia and this introduction of this APL, which I want you to talk about. But 
Just from someone who's a distant observer of Australian football, I've attended a few A-League games with you. Um, I've seen what the A-League can be on certain days and certain occasions. But I've got to be honest, I could care less about the A-League at the moment. I don't know what's happening there. I, it could be my ignorance. It could just be a lack of interest in domestic football in Australia. But is my experience consistent with what the, the overall trend of the A-League and what can be done to stop it or why has that happened? Yep. Yeah, so the short answer to your question of, of whether it's your experience is consistent, the answer is yes. And there's a whole range of reasons why. So a lot to unpack there and to keep it brief. The A-League suffers from a lack of stars, a lack of interest and a perceived lack of quality. Now, Australians generally, we're fortunate to be the best at cricket or one of the best at cricket. Sorry if that offends you and your <laughs> audience. Um, we've got the best Aussie Rules League. We've got yeah. the best Rugby League um, competition. We're used to seeing the best. And it's we're 30 no million, secret. 25 to exactly. 30 million people. It's yeah. no secret that the A-League isn't the best quality. But it, I think, and this is just my personal opinion, it is still worth watching and it is still worth investing time in. I think it's really bizarre seeing the national teams get such great support. The Socceroos, even the Matildas recently, that's another podcast, I think, how they went, where you know, literally 10 million plus people are tuning in to watch a game and, and loving it why we can't bring that same level of support to the local game. I think it's because of what I just described. We want to see the best and it's not the best. Um, we don't have the star power that the league used to have. So I think the league peaked in 2010 to 2014 when we had Marquise coming over. Is that Del Piero Del as well? Del Piero, Heskey, um, Shinjiono, David Villa was here for a That's bit. Huge. We had, um, that was, I guess, the carrot that brought what we call, what we local soccer fans call Euro snobs, the, the, the soccer fans that just would rather watch the EPL than the A-League, that got the Euro snobs interest. Um, but so, what happened after that? So we can't compete now. Saudi Arabia is, is yes. an example. The US is an example. They're markets now that are taking the Australian idea of getting marquees. And when I say marquee, I mean the, the star in their twilight, the, Europe, the big name that all football fans recognize. We were attracting, we attract, Del Piero, absolutely, like for any... Italian fan for any, um, you know, lover of football. He's a huge name, the biggest name we've ever had. The crowds were like triple what they are now in, on average, wherever he played. And um, so we're lacking that. And I think because we don't have the quality or we can't say we're the best league in the world, we need other almost, it's gimmicky. I know it sounds gimmicky, but we need other factors or reasons to make it interesting. Um, we don't have promotion relegation in Australia. So everywhere else in the world, Almost ninety percent of the world, you'd say, um, has this concept of the worst team potentially, you know, facing the risk of being relegated to a lower division. That adds tension. That adds interest to, um, you know, those games where um, they might not otherwise have meaning. We don't have that. We're a closed franchise model. Um, we don't have. Just to pick up on that point, these are issues that are issues with the league, but can like these are also solutions to the league in the sense. Do you agree playing in summer and not during the winter periods hurts or helps the A-League? It affects the quality, but it also gives the A-League the opportunity to get some media exposure. True. Because in winter, you're coming up against the NRL, the AFL. It's too much. It's, it's saturated. Much. Yeah. It's a saturated market Correct. where any A-League news would not even uh, be in the news because the papers are stacked with NRL on the first two pages, then AFL then rugby, then Correct. news about Australians playing overseas in cricket. So, yeah, and the other reason is they wanted to align the A-League with Europe, the European calendar. So when there's an international break um, in Europe, we can we can do the same. It means the Australian players are, are fit and, sorry, the locally based Australian players are fit and can, um, can match it. With so, so that's one point, Phil. The other point I want to ask you is the A-League is not a free-to-air product. Now, you could, at some stage, if you're not a big sport, you can't be demanding that free-to-air channels broadcast your, broadcast your games. But what, for a sport that, I was reading some stat in 2021, between 6 and 13, there's a 
participation rate of around almost 50% of people who play a sport play football. For that sport, you need to have some free to air access. It needs to be some agreement where KO or Fox Sports show broadcast games, but that it's also streamed on SBS, ABC, if none of the big stations want to show it. But there has to be that. That's the only way in which you can grow a sport. Yeah, and I and yeah, you're right. And Channel Ten did put some investment in and do show. I think one game a week um, on free to air. But what I was going to say, touching on the unbundling point you made, um, the A League just has also suffered, and football in Australia has suffered from just poor governance. A lot of infighting. The other, the the unique um, history of, of football here means that there's so many stakeholders that have their say so you've got your ffa that manage the country the, the the game nationally but then you've got these state federations that are um they were you know before there was unification um you know in charge of their own jurisdiction they haven't given up power or they don't want to relinquish power and then you've got um football or sorry administrators that aren't football people making decisions so the a-league peaked as we just said in 2012 to 2014 or around that period when del Piero was here um is that also when the western sydney wanderers yes, were they, getting that was the same season that yeah. del Piero came the wanderers came that was a master stroke they've tried to expand it and in my opinion they've expanded by adding teams um in the wrong wrong markets yeah. for example the two the most recent expansion um saw a team called western united join the league <laughs> Where do you think Western United are based? If I just say that's... Western Sydney? No. Where? Where else do you think they could be? Balmain? No. Western Australia think... maybe? Yeah. No, that's wrong as well. Where? Western Melbourne. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And that diluted a Melbourne derby, which had yeah. built up over that same period during the peak. MacArthur Rams, they're the other team. They get 2,000 people to their um, stadium because... That's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. They should have expanded into untapped markets like Tasmania, Canberra, Wollongong. Um, they're about to add a second New Zealand team from Auckland next season. That might help. That makes sense. They've just yeah. they've tried. They've cannibalized what was good and what the peak A League was thriving under, which was derbies. There was you've been to derbies between Sydney yeah. and Western Sydney with me. That were real. That was a crazy atmosphere. That was intense. It actually, but felt like proper football. Yeah, but that's somewhat diminished now or diluted because you've got this third Sydney team, which technically those derbies between Sydney and Western Sydney should be equally as big with MacArthur, but it's just not the same. The unbundling, just to very briefly, the unbundling was the FFA giving up or selling or disposing of its... um, Control over the A-League. So the A-League clubs... And the W-League. Yes. So the the clubs themselves now manage the league themselves. And that's based off the UK model where the Premier League in the early 90s did the same thing. There was okay. the FA, the Football Association in England, managed the football pyramid, what was called the Football League, the Division One, which is what we know as the APL or the Premier League, was the top of that pyramid. The clubs decided, let's go f- make our own league purely to benefit from television, the money from television rights. Okay. So instead of distributing television rights down the whole pyramid, television rights are now just distributed among the 20 clubs in the Premier League, which is why they're so wealthy. And so Australia's following a Australia followed that, but the difference there is we're in a fran- with the A League's a franchise model. Um, there's no change or chance for new members to join, really, unless a new club comes in. But it's arguably a struggling product that you're giving the, I think, the wrong stakeholder the power to control. So they've made decisions like, if you may recall, they've organized for all three, for the next three grand finals to be held in Sydney as opposed to the highest place team earning the right to host the grand final yeah, okay that got has since been rescinded but that caused massive drama protest people boycotting games not helpful whether the ffa made that would have made that decision or not i don't know but it was obviously a money that a decision that was based on money these clubs are starving for money and they made it and yeah shot themselves in the foot examples like that throughout and since the unbundling have i think caused the momentum in the league to stifle and um yeah, I'm not sure I'll finish up with asking you yeah. a question. You're a football fan or mm. a sports fan. You're an Arsenal fan. You follow the Australia team. Why, you said you don't have any interest. What do you think would pique your interest in the A-League? A couple of things. I, initially, I thought that they're playing at the wrong time of the year. Football is a winter sport in Australia. Whenever youngsters or juniors play, they play in the winter. So in order for football, I think, to truly succeed it needs to be played in the months that people are playing football. In summer, we're traveling, 
we're watching cricket we're not as interested in football but that, i don't think that's a that's a big reason i just think it's the quality of play but how do you fix that it's a very slow very slow 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 process but the thing is australia has the grassroots to play um, football at the highest level because all our juniors play football and then there is some some issue that happens between 13 and 18 where we don't see these youngsters who are potential superstars keeping with the sport and it could be a money thing the a-league does not pay half as well as any of the other codes including rugby the money's only there when they go overseas and you have to be fairly well off or have some connections in order to be able to play overseas i agree with you the other issue is the marquee signings i was interested in the a-league when you had just random stars come in like romario played for a little bit was it juninho came yeah. and played and when there was that understanding that Dwight York was going to come and play and lead Sydney FC to a title, I was like, I want to see this guy play and I want to see how good he goes against these opposition. When, when Usain Bolt said, let me have a go at playing for the Central Coast Mariners for a game, he didn't play that long. But it was that concept that we could attract players of that caliber. And I didn't appreciate this as much as you, when, when you directed my attention to it, which is that with the arrival of Saudi Arabia, Dubai, like the Middle East as a footballing center, it means now we, whereas one day we might've thought maybe Cristiano Ronaldo might want to play one game in Australia, four games. We have no chance of that happening now and I don't know how to fix that, but that's probably where we need to start. The foot, FFA or some footballing code needs to say in the interest of Australian football, each team needs to have one or two marquee players that go outside the salary cap because we need to stir up the interest. Otherwise, play, people like me who got interest in so many other sports, I'm not saying I'm a, I, I am the example of the Australian fan, but I'm going to be fickle in how much time I spend watching sport. And I'm not going to watch it if it's, if it's an inferior product. And at the moment it is. And that's just putting it bluntly. But finish with this. Give me some hope. You're the commissioner of the A-League. Give me three quick fixes. What are three things you would implement tomorrow if you had you know unlimited power to fix the a-league and we'll finish with that promotion relegation okay get rid of these silly expansion teams and add instead teams in untapped markets yeah so the 2000 fans in macarthur will be disappointed yeah but they were wanderers fans before so <laughs> um that's fine um and the third i think we just need to add they did have a marquee fund to try attract marquees, um, which I guess it's hard when Saudi Arabia paying 100 million a year for some players, but we need to get the big names back because the, we've it. got good youth coming through, but that's not enough for the average fan that's, you know, distracted with other sports. Phil, always insightful from you. Wealth of knowledge. Thanks for having me.